Welcome, Summit family. My name is Curtis. I am the creative pastor here. That means day in and day out, I get to work with the wonderful folks uh, that are over communications and video and photo and digital web and app and graphic design, all that stuff. So if you like that stuff, that's the team I get to work with. Uh, if you don't like it, Pastor JD runs that area, so you can talk to him. Um, man, aside from working with those folks day in and day out, there are a few things I love more than getting to deliver God's Word to you. Um, but if I'm honest, it can be a little bit nerve-wracking at times. Uh, not public speaking, that doesn't bother me one bit, but because I know <laughs> I'm not Pastor JD, and so I'm automatically fighting an uphill battle with a lot of you. Um, and I was telling this to JD the other day, and in an effort to be encouraging, he was like, hey man, you're going to be fine. Like, don't try to be charming or witty or sound smart. Just be yourself. <laughs> it's like, oh, thanks, JD. <laughs> Appreciate that one. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. I love my pastor. Um, I really do. I'm beyond thankful for him. I am indebted to him in ways I will never be able to repay. Um, he will be back here next weekend starting a three-week series called Unknown God, where we are going to be looking at atheism and faith. Um, it's going to take us right through Easter. Um, we're going to be looking at some of the hardest questions that are presented to the Christian faith. And so this is going to be a phenomenal time for you to bring your friends, family members that may be skeptics or have um, questions about the faith. And so make sure on your way out today that you grab some Easter invite cards and uh, meet us back here next week for that. Uh, a series about atheism on Easter, only at the Summit Church, right? <laughs> um, one of the many reasons I love this church, I do, I love serving at this church. I love the people of this church. I love the message and the mission and the worship. Um, I really do. I just love everything about this church. How many of y'all just genuinely love this church? Yeah, <clears throat> I do. And you know, um, I can't help but compare our church, the Summit Church, to the church that we've been studying for the last eight weeks, the church at Ephesus. A church that the Holy Spirit was exploding in and doing some incredible things in. Um, here's just a few of the ways the Summit Church reminds me of the church at Ephesus. Um, first, they had phenomenal leadership at Ephesus. The Apostle Paul is an elder there, you know, wrote half the New Testament Apostle Paul. Um, Timothy, his right-hand man, 1st, 2nd Timothy. Timothy. Um, another one of their elders is the Apostle John, uh, like Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation John. So they have like Bible authors teaching in rotation at their church. This would be like us having not just JD, but like David Platt and John Piper just on regular rotation. It's just unfair. Um, the Holy Spirit is moving. He's healing. He's doing miracles, things we get to see week in and week out here. Um, people are getting saved at this church and then not just getting saved, but then being sent out to tell more people about Jesus. Things we see right here at the Summit Church. And then most of all, I think the biggest comparison is that they are planting other churches. They're one of the major churches that plant other churches in Asia. Like, seriously, what more could you want from a church? And doesn't this sound like our church just a bit? In ways, it almost feels like I'm gloating a little bit, but really, I'm just bragging on the work that the Holy Spirit has done in and through us for the past 15 years. And what's interesting in Scripture is Ephesus, at least to my knowledge, is the only church that we get to see the beginning of it, the middle of it, and the end of it. It's decline. And see, somewhere along the way, this awesome church, this amazing church that the Holy Spirit is exploding in, simply became a part of history. It just faded away and ceased to exist. And if that happened to them, Summit Church, couldn't that happen to us? So we've been looking at the life of this church for the last eight weeks in the book of Ephesians, which is the middle of it. And this morning, what I want to do, I want to jump to the end and look at the decline of the church and then actually hop back to the beginning to see what the death and the birth of this church look like with the ultimate hope that the Holy Spirit will guide and correct us so as not to make the same mistakes that they did. 
And so last, last week, Pastor J.D. closed out our Ephesians series by preaching on Satan and demons. And so I thought to myself, man, I want to be a little bit more encouraging and smiley than that this week. So I was like, what's the most encouraging book in the Bible? The book of Revelation. And so, um, not kidding, you can open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to begin in chapter 2. Um, like I said, we're going to look at the death of this church at the end. We're going to flash forward, look at that, and then come back to the beginning in Acts in a moment. So we're going to flash forward and then come back, uh, kind of like an old Lost episode or something. Just hopefully this sermon has a better ending. So Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. This is Jesus talking to the church at Ephesus. And he says this in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You've persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. Again, seems like a phenomenal church, right? Great theology, they endure well, they don't deal with evil people. Like, sign me up. What a great church. Then verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You ever had a conversation like this? <laughs> Or somebody's like, yo, you are amazing, but <laughs> that's what's happening. Verse 5, remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Let me translate that for you from the original Greek. Ephesus, you have fallen out of love with Jesus. The beginning for this church was amazing. They were obsessively in love with God because they had just realized for the first time how much he truly loved them, and so they were on fire. But over time, that newness just faded. And maybe you felt this way in different aspects of your life. Maybe um, a relationship that at first was just incredible, and you're on fire, and you're in love with this person. You do everything for them, and then over time, it just kind of becomes normal. Or maybe in a new job that at the beginning, just the prospect and the, the potential that it has with the new paycheck, and it's just awesome. And then six months later, what was a blessing in your life has all of a sudden become an 8 a.m. curse every day that you have to wake up and go to. Or maybe spiritually, maybe spiritually over time, it has become not as exciting to read your Bible anymore. Maybe not as easy to pray Maybe worship music doesn't stir you like it used to, or maybe sermons aren't as intoxicating as they weren't were, or as they once were. And so you find yourself this morning sitting in here, stuck in a spiritual neutral, even though you might be doing all the right things. You're like, I'm in church. I'm in a small group. I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to have quiet time. I serve. I give. I do these things. But there's just not that same passion that I once had at the beginning. Has anybody else ever felt like this besides me? <laughs> If you haven't, you haven't been a Christian very long, because it's coming. Think about it. You used to get, just think about the first time you even came to this church, to the Summit Church. You came in, and the worship was just incredible. And then whatever Pastor J.D. was preaching on, and forever how long he was preaching on it, you loved it. You didn't care. And now you're just like, Nicolas Cage again? Like, can we get over this guy? Somewhere along the way, what you fell in love with suddenly became not enough. And this is exactly what happened to this church at Ephesus. It's how it died. It didn't have some big theological heresy creep in. It just slowly fell out of love with Jesus. But here's the good news. While God may find you in a mess, he will never, ever leave you in one. And so he gives them instruction in verse 5 on how to fall back in love. 
He says, remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, I I need to be crystal clear here. I need you to hear this because if you don't hear this correctly, it's going to skew how you hear the rest of this sermon. He says, do the things you did at first. What he's saying is that there are some things that we can and that we should do to maintain a burning love and passion for Jesus, for us to maintain that passion for Jesus, not things to do to get Jesus to fall back in love with us. This is very important because God's love for you is built solely on the work of Jesus Christ, not anything that you have done, not anything you are doing, not anything you will ever do. And so he tells them that if you will just go back to doing what you did at the beginning, that their love and desire for him will be restored. His love hasn't gone anywhere. He will never leave you nor forsake you because his love is not predicated upon your performance in the first place. See, if the beauty of Jesus is enough to satisfy the infinite God for eternity, and yet you find yourself in here this morning not satisfied, not pleasured, not in love with him. That's not an issue with Jesus. That's just blindness on your part. The problem is with our blindness, not with his beauty. And so I just want to ask, what were the things they were doing at first that made their relationship so intimate? What were they doing that made them obsessively in love with Jesus? If you've grown bored with Jesus, what are some of the things you should be returning to? And what are the things we can do to make sure that our love and affection for Jesus does not fade and that the Summit Church ultimately disappear? So let's go back and look at the beginning, Acts chapter 19. So if you were in Revelation, just keep flipping left, uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We're going to be in Acts 19, and let's go there to get a sense of where they fell from. He said, remember how far you have fallen. Let's go remember. Let's go see. Um, While you're turning there, just to give you a little context, uh, there's no church in Ephesus at this point. There's a few believers, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, is going around, um, and he shows up in Ephesus, and he finds a few of these believers, and then the Holy Spirit just starts doing work on these folks. And so we're going to pick up in verse 8. Acts 19, beginning in verse 8. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul's in Ephesus to preach the gospel, to plant a church, and initially he's speaking in this Jewish synagogue, which, think of it, it's just their version of a big church building, essentially. It's where all the Jews, all the religious elite went, but they get really tired of him there, so he ends up leaving. He takes his disciples with him, and he goes to preach in this lecture hall of Tyrannus, which you should think of that basically like a classroom, just a small little lecture room is all it is. And this might seem like a huge bummer, because the synagogue's the place to be, right? It's where all the religious people are, it's where the Jews are, it's where the elite are. But see, in the synagogue, he could only preach one day a week. He could only preach on the Sabbath day, and he could only preach to the Jews, one little group of people. So um, the Greeks were not involved, and he could only do that one day a week. And so by moving to this lecture hall, this classroom, he can now preach the gospel every single day. He can be strategic about what times he teaches the gospel, like off hours of work, and he can preach to everybody, both Jews and Greeks. And so verse 10, it says, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Just think about this for a second. Think about how easy, if you were the Apostle Paul, think about how easy it would have been to get discouraged about not having the perfect platform to speak from in the synagogue. But he leaves there, he follows the Holy Spirit, he rents this lecture hall, this classroom, and ultimately what started in the hall ends up in all of Asia in two years. 
That's insane. I don't know about you, but unlike Paul, we tend to think that if we can just get our lost friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors to come to church, the Christian synagogue, that that's where God's going to save them. And yes, absolutely, God uses the church every single week to save people. But what if God really wants to use you to go meet people where they're at in the hall? What if God intends for you to be the vehicle by which he saves your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or your coworker or your friend? And you might want to bring them to church. That's awesome. Do that. So you may think the synagogue is the place for salvation, but God actually has the spirit ready to use you in the hall if you'll just follow him. And you have no idea how God wants to use you. He is always using you if you are being obedient to the Spirit. The question is, are you willing to follow the Spirit to the hall even when the synagogue seems like the place to be? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you in conversations in your work hall or in the hall at your gym or in the hall at your neighborhood? If the Spirit called you to go to the hall of the mission field and leave an amazing church like this, would you go? Well, because Paul was allowing the Holy Spirit to work through him in this way, verse 11 God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. God's doing the miracles. Paul's just the instrument. Verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. I just love that this is a job in the first place. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. <laughs> Just think about this for a moment. This is amazing. Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet they're seeing Jesus work so mightily that they're saying, I'm going to try to cast out demons in Jesus' name, the Jesus that I don't believe in. Paul has shown that his God, this Jesus, is so powerful that people are just like, I want to get in on some of that. So they start shouting the name of Jesus, hoping it's going to work. Don't you want people to look at you like that? Don't you want people to look at your faith and your God like that? Don't you want people to say, hey, I may not believe in her God, but what I do know is that whenever life throws her unbelievable circumstances, there's something in her that is unshakable. See, these Jewish exorcists, they're trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, which is actually great logic. You can't fault them for that because all power and authority is in the name of Jesus. But it's terrible execution because what they failed to realize is that for Jesus' power to work through them, it first has to be in them. For Jesus' power to work through them, it first has to be in them. I love the way Rick Warren says this. He says, Christ-likeness, the power of Christ, Christ-likeness is not produced by imitation, shouting the name of Jesus, but by inhabitation. See, the power to cast out demons doesn't come by imitation, it doesn't come by just shouting Jesus over everything. It comes by surrendering your life to Christ as Lord and having the Holy Spirit inhabit your heart and have him work through you. Which is why 1 John 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And see, there's a lie right here. There's a lie right here that Satan wants every one of us to believe this morning. And here it is. It's that you can have all the privileges of Jesus without actually possessing Jesus. But listen, you cannot have the power if you don't want the person. <laughs> These Jewish exorcists, they wanted the power, they just wanted nothing to do with the person. That's not how it works, because Jesus does not come to you as Savior unless you also accept him as Lord of your life. You can't just say, I want you to save me from hell, but I don't want anything else to do with you. It's not just lip service. 
And accepting him as Lord means I'm willing to go wherever you tell me to go. I'm willing to do whatever you tell me to do. Forsake whatever you tell me to forsake because you are worth giving up everything for. Verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva, it's a fantastic name, were doing this. They were trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? (laughs) Now this has to be the most embarrassing diss in all of history. (laughs) That a demon is so unthreatened and uninterested in you that he asks, who in the world are you? And I can't help but think, it makes me think of um, one of my favorite movies. If you don't like this movie, you can just go ahead and leave. This is not the church for you. Um, Lion King. Makes me think of Lion King. Disney, Pixar, all all Disney movies are fantastic. Makes me think of the scene um, toward the beginning of the movie where Simba is still a little baby lion Simba. And his dad tells him, hey, you cannot go to that dark place. Don't go over there. It's bad over there. And what he does, he's trying to impress his little girlfriend. And so, of course, he takes her over there to show her he's big and bad. And what happens? Hyenas end up chasing him, they're on the run, and they're getting away, and then all of a sudden they hit a wall and they can't climb up it. Well, Simba turns around and the hyenas are closing in, and he puts his girlfriend behind him like a man should, covering her. And so he's trying to be big bad Simba, baby Simba, and the hyenas are closing in, and then what does he do next? He tries to let out this roar to scare him off, but he's a little baby Simba, and so it's so squeaky and pathetic, and so he's like, rah, 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 rah. and what they do, they literally laugh, like these hyenas laugh at him. And then one of them actually says, hey, why don't you try that again? Why don't you try that again as they're creeping in, they're closing on? Well, unbeknownst to both parties, right when Simba's just getting the breath to give up that next belt, what happens? Mufasa. Mufasa. (sighs) (laughs) Big old daddy comes in, and what you visibly see on the screen is Simba roar or try to roar, and what you hear is, and then the hyenas just go fleeing. And see, I can't help but think that this is the kind of picture of what's happening here. See, because left to ourselves in the face of our enemy, we're just squeaking out little pathetic roars into a laughing face of our enemy. But then, listen, King Jesus, what's his name? The Lion of Judah, that when your enemy surrounds you, you have a God, a Mufasa, named King Jesus, the Lion of Judah, that surrounds your enemies. And he comes, and when he inhabits you, he roars mightily and scares them away. There's no demon, there's no enemy that can come against you because you are more than a conqueror. But left to your own flesh, demons will laugh in your face. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, they will flee. That's not even the best part. Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all seven of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. There's so many easy jokes here. But this, let's just say, say if you um, have ever watched a fight, whether boxing or UFC or been in a street fight, whatever it is, um, no judgment. If you've ever watched a fight, there's usually a pretty big debate after the fight on who actually won the fight and who actually lost the fight, right? Let me just, let me just throw this out there as a general rule when it comes to fighting. If when the fight began, you had your pants on, <laughs> and when the fight ended... <laughs> you are no longer wearing pants, you have lost that fight, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Nobody is arguing that you won that fight. And this is the kind of stuff I love. Like, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) This is one of, it's things like this, stories like this, that make me really believe the Bible. Because I'm like, why else is that in there except that it really happened? 
And so the Holy Spirit is moving and miracles are happening and false teachers are getting beaten naked and Jesus is just flexing. Jesus is just roaring over Ephesus and God is doing miracles in their midst and people are getting saved. But we read Revelation. We know what's coming, right? Remember how far they've fallen. This is where they've fallen from. Remember they fell out of love with Jesus somewhere. And so God tells them to fall back in love. They should go back and do what they were doing at the beginning. And so here it is. This is everything we've been working up toward. Verse 17. In this, these extraordinary miracles became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, magicians, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what were they doing at the beginning? What were you and I doing at the beginning? Well, first, in the beginning, they worshiped God freely. In the beginning, they worshiped God freely. And we see that in verse 17. It's right here. It says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, it's a little bit of a Bible word. You don't just go around saying, I'm extolling this, extolling that. But extol just means to praise or to glorify or to worship God enthusiastically. When you extol him, you worship him enthusiastically. Now, this is not to say that this praise is always going to manifest itself in a type of raucous worship. After all, sometimes the hottest fires are not the ones with the largest flames. (laughs) See, for some people, being overcome with the love of Jesus and extolling him is going to manifest itself in jumping and shouting and raising hands and running around. It is. But for others, it's going to make them fall to their knees in tears and just weep quietly. The point is that when you really see Jesus in all of his beauty, you will be moved to extol him in one way or another. I think Charles Spurgeon said it best when he said, it cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and yet a totally silent tongue about him. (laughs) What he's saying is that you don't have to be an extrovert to be an extoller of God. See, some of you say you're a Christian and you're here this morning and you've been coming to church your entire life and yet you've truly known what it, never known what it's like to truly worship God passionately and freely and love him intimately and find yourself deeply, obsessively, entirely in love with Jesus. You say you've been a Christian for 20 years and yet you've never even shared your faith with anybody. And what I see here is that if you truly have a high appreciation of Jesus, then there is no way you will be silent about him because your life will just extol him naturally. And so if you're here this morning and you are an unbeliever, that you are not a follower of Christ, and you know somebody that claims Christian, but that person has never shared the greatest news in the history of the world to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the message that says you can give God your sin and he will give you his righteousness, and that person's life actually doesn't at all match up with what they've been saying, I just want to apologize to you for a moment. Really glad you're here, but I just want to apologize to you. And what I hope we'll all see is that there's a fundamental difference between taking up Jesus and being taken up by Jesus. Because, see, you can have an appreciation of Jesus without having an affection for him. But God is not after mere appreciation, which is why Jesus says in Matthew 15, these people people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are so far from me. They worship me in vain. And if anything in the Bible I can relate to, this is it. Because for so long, this was me. 
I got saved when I was 21, but all the years before that, I would have told you I was a Christian. I grew up in church. My parents did a fantastic job keeping me in church, doing the best they could. And I would have told you I was a Christian. Even went to a little camp when I was like 11 or 12 and heard the gospel and prayed a prayer and got an awesome little gold cross necklace that I never took off, kind of became my salvation. But about two years after that, starting about 13, 14, I'm also the guy that's like the ringleader of parties because I can go buy whatever I want because I've had a beard like this since I was like 11. And so I can buy whatever I want. I can go out. Um, I'm getting hammered all the time. I'm sleeping around. I'm doing whatever I want. But yet... In that moment, I'm still going to church, and I would be the guy at like 3 a.m., like hammered drunk, like nine-eyed drunk, that if you dropped a GD, I'd be like, hey, bro, you can't say that. That's offensive. I'm a Christian. See, what I was trying to do was honor God with my lips, but my heart was so far from him. And if I'm being honest, one of, one of the main reasons I never wanted to fully commit to this whole Jesus thing was because I thought I'd be giving up everything fun in life. <laughs> I really did. I had bought into the stereotype of what holy people are like. That they're just lifeless and monotonous and dull and bland and anemic and so boring and spiritual that it just looked painful. That there was no joy. And yet the way the Bible describes loving Jesus is like going to a wedding. Where Jesus and his disciples are the wedding party. And Jesus is the groom whose joy is just overflowing into the hearts of all those in attendance. One of my best friends just got married two weeks ago, and you couldn't help but just the entire day, it's not my wedding, but just the entire day just smiling and being overjoyed and happy for them. And this is what it's like to truly know and love and see Jesus, that there's a joy that just comes out of you, a joy that turns fasting into feasting. But listen, the best part, it's not just a joy that you get to share for a single day. It's a joy and a happiness and a pleasure that you have for eternity. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 16, God, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've been seeking after joy and happiness and satisfaction and pleasure, I'm here to tell you I'm seeking after the same thing. And I've tried it in all the same ways you've tried it. And it was fun for a night. I promise you, I had some fun. But the next morning, it was always a temporary satisfaction. It could not sustain me. It could not withstand the weight of my soul and my needs. It would just be a burden. And yet, I found someone, and his name is Jesus Christ Almighty. And he says that he will give me fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And so if that's what you're seeking after, joy and pleasure, I'm telling you, he's right here. His name is Jesus. I will talk about him as long as you give me. But I'm on a clock, so I'm going to stop and keep moving. But I'm telling you, joy and pleasure are found in Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ alone. You know what? We're just going to keep rolling. The psalmist, this is why the psalmist couldn't help all through the psalms but shout about the glory of God. Here's a few. Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Psalm 68, sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. Psalm 109, with my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great multitude of worshipers I will praise him. Psalm 115, it is we who extol the Lord both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. If you don't like this, you can just go ahead and leave because I'm just going to keep going. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you people. Psalm 118, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Psalm 145, he drops it three times in Psalm 145. I'll extol you, my God, my King. I will bless your name forever and ever, which means every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. All your works praise you, Lord, your faithful people extol you. Amen. My mic is off. Worship team, come back. This sermon is done. (laughs) 
Listen, if you have ever been weirded out by Christians who seem so happy all the time that it seems almost fake, and you're wondering, how in the world are they like that? Maybe it's just because they have the joy and the pleasure and the satisfaction that Jesus offers, and they got a little bit more Jesus than you do. (laughs) And they can't help but worship him freely. Summit Church, let's not let anything keep us from worshiping God freely because the second we stop worshiping is the second our hearts will start wandering. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So how do we keep from wandering? Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Your version might say confessing and divulging their sins. The second thing they did in the beginning is that they confess sin regularly. They confess sin regularly. See, the verb tenses here, allow me to be a Bible geek for a second, the verb tenses here indicate that these people, that they kept coming, they kept confessing, they kept divulging. See, what this shows me is that in the beginning, they hadn't learned how to play church yet. They hadn't learned how to play church. This is what I mean. They hadn't learned that when someone asks you how you're doing on a Sunday morning, that you're not actually supposed to tell them how jacked up you are and how hard of a time you've had following Jesus this week. You're supposed to say, I'm beyond blessed, brother. How are you? Praise the Lord. They hadn't learned how when you start feeling uncomfortable during a sermon, that you're always supposed to think about somebody else that needs to hear the sermon because it most certainly couldn't be that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of anything, right? They hadn't learned that The time for prayer requests is actually a time of gossiping about other people's sins. Ouch. Because God forbid I talk about something that I'm struggling with and have people pray over that. They hadn't learned these things. They hadn't learned how to play church yet. And so when they saw something that wasn't lining up with how they were living, they only knew to do one thing. Confess it. See, some of you think you're hiding your sin from God, and you're not. He sees everything. Hebrews 4 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Psalm 139, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. He knows everything, even your deepest, darkest, most shameful thoughts. How terrifying is that? So why not just confess it and allow the blood of Jesus to cleanse it all? See, kept to yourself, your sin, yes, it will condemn you, but given to Jesus, your sin will be covered. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us those sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. You confess he's faithful and just to forgive, amen, awesome, but you also get righteousness and cleansing. Praise God, glory to him in the highest. And listen, confessing sin, I know it's hard, I know it, but it's so worth it. And the lie that the enemy is trying to tell you right now, right now, in this moment, the lie that the enemy is trying to tell you is that if you confess your sin, then people are going to be ashamed of you, that nobody's going to respect you, or look at you the same, that God's not going to approve of you, or that there's going to be all this fallout that you can't come back from. Listen, there's nothing that Satan would rather have you do right now than keep your sin to yourself, because he knows that if he can keep you accused in this moment, then he can keep you unused in the kingdom of God. 
And I'm not going to say that confession isn't messy. But to think that hiding your sin is better than confessing it is a lie from the pit of hell. And in Jesus' name, you need to confess that sin because Jesus will only cover what you choose to confess. Jesus will only cover what you choose to confess. And so in the beginning, they're worshiping God freely. They're confessing sin regularly. And lastly, they were abandoning idols fully. See, an idol is anything you prioritize above God. We talk about this a lot here. It's whatever you could not live without that is not Jesus. And here in the beginning, here's how Ephesus dealt with idols. We see this in verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books, their magic books together, and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 50,000 pieces of silver today would be worth about $8 million dollars. There were these magicians' livelihood. It's where their spells were. It's where everything was. So the question is, like, how would these guys make their living? What would their community think? They're walking away from their jobs, their careers. And what's weird is, actually, at that time in Ephesus, their context was really notorious for its use of these dark magic arts. And so to the world, to those around them, it really wouldn't have been a big deal. It would have been just fine to keep their books. And this is why it's always so easy for us to justify our idols. Oh, I know there's a little nudity in that show, but everybody's watching it, and it's a great show. I know it seems like I neglect my family for work, but I'm just making sure we're provided for. Man, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody's doing it. And you just told me God's forgiving anyways, right? I can even hear Judas saying, don't burn the books. Sell them and give the money to the poor. A.W. Tozer says it perfectly. He says, much of our difficulty in life, much of our difficulty in life stems from our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. These folks just simply took God as he is and realized that their practices, their sins didn't line up, so they adjusted their lives accordingly, and they got rid of everything, including their careers and their livelihood, that was not glorifying to God because it's impossible to embrace the future that God has for you until you run away from your past. See, if it's not Jesus, you need to get rid of it. If it's not Jesus, you need to turn your back on it. If it's not him, have nothing to do with it. They didn't bother thinking, well, if I do that, if I repent, that means I'm going to have to give this up. No, they just said, I don't care what I have to give up because Jesus is so much greater than anything this world has to offer in the first place. And see, when you truly repent of sin... You will always keep yourself as far as possible from the occasions of it. You don't try to toe the line. And so by burning their books, they were making sure that they could never go back to that way of life again. As Pastor J.D. has said before, where God's presence becomes real to you, sin becomes intolerable to you. Once you have been freed from the bondage of sin, you have a freedom unlike anything you've ever experienced before. Which is why they burn their books in the sight of all. They wanted everybody to know about this Jesus. It was a declaration. It was an extolling that Jesus is worth giving up everything for, even their careers and their reputations. They were worshiping God freely. They were confessing sin regularly. They were abandoning their idols fully. These were the things they were doing at the beginning. But there's one more thing that they were told way back in Revelation. Verse 5, it said, Remember how far you have fallen. See, Scripture says we love God because he first loved us. 
and nothing will make you fall back in love with Jesus as fast again as remembering what he has done for you. And so you walk in here this morning having messed up. God still loves you. When you were fallen, remember how God picked you up? When you were dead in the water, remember how God snatched you up out of that water and breathed life back into you? When you had a heart of stone that didn't care about anything, remember how he gave you a heart of flesh to love him? When you had no eyes to see, remember that how he gave you sight. Remember how Jesus picked you up. Remember how he sat you in the heavenly places. Remember that he puts you right now at the right hand of the throne of God to reign as a co-heir with Christ. Remember that you are more than a conqueror in him who loves you. Remember that you are a brother. Remember that you are a sister of the Most High. God, you are a daughter of the King. Remember how you are united with him in his righteousness. Just remember this morning how much he loves you. Just go back to the beginning. Do you remember how beautiful he was the first time you saw him? Do you remember how he saved you and what he saved you from? Do you remember that there was a time when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, separated from Christ? But God, but God stepped in, but God, gosh, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved not of your own work so that no one may boast, but God stepped in. Remember how God saved you. Remember how God redeemed you. Remember how God restored you. Remember how he brought you back to himself. You remember his love towards you. You remember how grateful you were because of where he brought you from. You remember the depth of his love towards you displayed on the cross. And so when you worship, you can't help but put your hands in the air. (laughs) For some of you, you can't help but fall on your face in tears. When you praise him, when you extol him, you can't help but shout, whether loudly or whether silently unto him. It just comes out of you as natural as breathing because you will always worship God when you remember. You'll always confess sin when you remember and you will abandon all of your false idols when you remember. What's keeping this from happening to us, Summit Church? We have incredible leadership got biblical theology. For 15 years, we have endured the attacks of Satan. The Holy Spirit is doing far more than we ever could have asked or imagined. All just like Ephesus. Yet for them, somewhere along the way, Jesus became not enough. So this morning, let's let the Holy Spirit correct us and redirect our affections to worship God freely to confess sin regularly, and to abandon our idols fully. Would you pray with me? God, I know right now there are two types of people who have been under the sound of my voice. The first are those who say they have trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord of their lives. And God, this morning, for the first time, maybe some of them need to worship you freely. Maybe in a moment when we start singing, when we start worshiping, they need to just close their eyes and forget everybody around them and what those people think about them. And they just need to put their hands in the air. Maybe they need to shout a praise God. (laughs) Maybe for others, when we start singing, they need to turn around and fall on their knees and turn their chair into an altar of confession. Maybe they need to confess 
what's been burdening them and weighing them down and keeping them from worshiping you freely. Maybe the person they came with this morning, maybe they need to confess something to that person and have them walk through life with them. God, and then the other set of people are those who do not know you this morning. God, those who, who have heard this message and who say, hey, yes, I've been chasing after all these satisfactions, all this pleasure, all this joy, and I have found that it is all temporary. And you have told me about this guy named Jesus, and I want that. I want eternal satisfaction and pleasure. And if that's you this morning, you can receive him as Christ, as, as Lord and Savior of your life by simply praying a prayer that sounds something like this. You can say, God, I admit that I am a sinner. But I also now know that you are so much greater of a Savior. And so, God, I give my life to you. Would you save me? God, I'm willing to follow you wherever you tell me to go. I'm willing to do whatever you tell me to do. And I'm willing to give up whatever you tell me to give up. And God, for both groups of those people, God, in the next few moments, would you just open our hearts, our eyes, and our minds to see the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? Would we worship him freely in this place? It's in his name I pray. Amen.